Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing a new charter which aims to combat racism among organisations dealing with violence against women and girls. And this week's Good News Bulletin is going to be a marathon special with uh, Third Sector News Editor Andy Ricketts joining us to chat about his experience running the Virgin Money London Marathon in aid of Skylarks. Uh, Skylarks is a charity which supports children with learning difficulties and disabilities and their families as well. But first we have a quick fire update on last week's episode. We're recording again and we do not have a charities minister. This may of course be out of date by the time you hear it but then again that's exactly what we said last week. So the element of update to this story is that there are some rumours circulating as to who the new minister might be. And uh, full credit here to Russell Hargrave, erstwhile freelancer at Third Sector and currently employed by, uh, oh yeah, rival outlet, Civil Society. Hi guys, how you doing? Um, Who tweeted on Tuesday, Word from the Conservative Conference is that Nigel Huddleston has told a few different events that he is the next charities minister, with some admin to finalise before it's official. Interestingly enough, although Russell tagged the MP from Worcestershire, Huddleston has not come back to deny it. He's also currently the Minister for Sport. And as we were saying last week, historically with Mims Davis and Tracy Crouch, the Sport and Charities brief did share a minister. So it could be that they are looking to recombine that brief. Right. And that might be what this whole kind of admin thing is about. Um, I'm quite conflicted about this story uh, or this story, story, but this this, this idea, this rumour, because... On one level, it's a pretty rubbish way for the government to treat charities, like we said last week, just leaving them hanging on like this and having to trade on rumours and just like, I don't read chicken entrails to find out who who they'll be working with in government. (laughs) On the other hand, it kind of made me think of the TV show Succession. And I, I just, I sort of love the idea of someone wandering around Tory party conference saying they are the anointed one. It just hasn't been announced yet, like some kind of charity shop chivroy. So I've never seen Succession. So I can safely say that this analogy has flown clear over my head, but I am sure it is a great and an accurate one. You are missing out so much. It's so good. I will get around to it. But, you know, I think ultimately things remain much as before in the sector. People are confused about why it is seemingly so hard to make this announcement and frustrated and disappointed that they're being treated this way. And I have to say, if the brief is getting recombined, it doesn't exactly suggest we're going to see a renewed and re-energised focus on the sector, does it? No, that's true. So... We watch and we wait. But at the moment of recording, still no news. Still no news. So what are we talking about this week? So earlier on this week, a working group launched a charter to combat racism and white supremacy amongst charities in the violence against women and girls sector. The anti-racism in the VAWG working group, which was formed last year, says it hopes the charter will support those working in the violence against women and girls sector to take concrete action towards racial justice and equality. Right. So the charter says, quote, there is a white supremacist working culture within the violence against women and girls sector, which bars organisations from being truly inclusive and democratic in decision making. To deal with this, the working group has called for proactive anti-racist work, equality of representation, more equal collaborative partnerships and a change in the approach to funding to ensure that organisations led by black and minoritised people are not facing additional barriers. To find out more about the Charter, I spoke to Hisaya Baye, Chief Executive of the Latin American Women's Rights Service and the anti-racism campaigner and Labour Oxford City Councillor Shaista Aziz, who have both been involved in creating the Charter. 
So Shaista Hizela, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so the working group was set up last year. Um, Hizela, how did that come about? And, and, and what are the issues at play in the violence against women and girls sector that you're looking to deal with? It came about um, as a result of the spark in conversations about racism um, that happened last summer as a result of the killing of George Floyd, um, as well as uh, the resurgence at a global level of the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of the things that happened is that it was very clear that two trends emerged very, very quickly. One was that a lot of organizations in the voluntary sector jumped on the wagon and started posting um, all these statements about racism and the need to tackle it. Um, without necessarily understanding the effect that it was having and the other trend that was happening with black and minoritized women, which were seeing this as part of the experience that we all have had for a very long time, but for whom this conversation was a lot more difficult um, in the sense that this is the same violence that has been enacted against us and our communities for a very long time, But the fact that so many people started realizing what a big issue this is was equally shocking and demoralizing because for us, it was part of life from the beginning and it has been part of the experience. Um, But it also kind of made realize that that the voluntary sector had a very long way to go to actually face the facts of structural discrimination and inequality based on race in order to start tackling it. So it was a group that came together and and thought, so how can we take this moment of awareness that's happening all around us and transform it to an action-oriented um, space where we can bring others with us to enact change that's not about making statements but about making changes if that makes sense it does absolutely um Shaisa, did you want to add anything on that yeah just to say uh you know the reinvigoration of the black lives matter movement has been exhilarating but also extremely exhausting for many of us and uh as Gisela said um we've been living these realities all our lives and we've inherited them as well from our parents or from family members and to see quite a lot of performative um, actions taking place in the Vogue sector uh, was very demoralising and also devastating for a lot of our colleagues. And also the fact that we are still in a pandemic and, you know, there's been record rises of reported domestic abuse in this country and, you know, uh, women working on the front line to save the lives of other women and children. I've just exhausted and, you know, they were coming to us as well and saying, we do not want to see these performative gestures. We need to see action. And so um, this is another reason why we came together. And the response has been really powerful at the launch. We had lots and lots of people there. We very deliberately centred the launch and indeed the charter and the work around the lived experiences of black and minoritised women. And we don't apologise for that. And so, yeah, tell me a bit about the charter. You know, What is it calling for? What are the key issues that it raises? Well, the Charter's calling for structural change, um, which is long-term work, and we understand that. So uh, alongside the absolute need for the Vogue sector to show open and clear solidarity with 
minoritized women and black women. We're also calling for structural changes. So we're asking these organizations that purport to stand up for all women to do just that. And we're calling on, you know, we're looking at issues around funding, around the scarcity of, of funds that are available to the VORG sector generally. But why are um, organizations that are not intersectional in their approach, that are not working with those women who are really at most risk of being harmed at the, all the intersections of VORG. Why is it that, you know, that they are busy trying to get that funding? Why is it that they're not working in a sisterly way with the smaller organisations who are doing the life-saving work? Uh, we're asking for transparency and accountability around the structures of boards, for example, trustees, um, and various various other things. There's a whole plethora of issues, but ultimately they all kind of connect. And we're also um, creating space with this charter for those who have not been heard, those who have not been valued and listened to, to also f- know that this space has been opened up for them. And uh, we, we, we pledge to keep hold of that space and to ensure that their voices are heard and that they are valued. Because it's only through this approach that we can actually ensure that the other aspects of this charter are put into action. And yeah, Hazela, did you have any key points that you kind of thought were sort of the, the, the really important bits for you? As Shaisa said, we're looking for structural change. Um, we obviously divided this into several themes that keep recurring. Uh, funding is central. Uh, partnerships is there. Um, having actual recognition of the work done by black and minoritized women organizations and recognition of the value of this work. So it it divides into several themes with several points of action um, to help the reflection space that needs to happen within the sector to to look for improvement. In the end, it's about how it's about how we create a different structure and come back to something better that really reflects both the needs of black and minoritized women, but also, you know, the way that we work, the expertise we have built. And, and all of that, the, the value that we bring into a sector. And I thought, I thought the bit about partnerships was very interesting within the Charter, that there seems to be a real concern about how larger, maybe sort of white-led organisations are behaving towards um, organisations that are led by black and minoritised ethnic women. Um, yeah, and I just wondered, what, what is it that is the problem there? What's going on there? Well, I think the problem is the colonisation of this space and of resources. Um, and that, and I use that word purposefully. We are here to talk about racism. We're here to talk about structural racism in the violence against women and girls sector. So this is being done deliberately. Throughout history, resources have been colonised and the same thing is happening here in this space. Um, we would like to ask the VORG sector, what is the purpose of all these partnerships? What is the real reason behind them? If it is literally about gaining more and more money uh, and finances for particular uh, larger white-led organisations. How is that acceptable when those services are not actually providing the life-saving work that the most vulnerable women in this country desperately need? Um, You know, it's really clear-cut. We have found that there are attempts to try and justify this in multiple different ways, but there is no justifying of it. And ultimately, to make structural change, one of the first things that has to happen is there has to be a re-examination of resources and how those resources are shared and who gets to access them. Everything else 
is important, but the, the, the baseline is the resource. And so this conversation is uncomfortable and we understand that, but it needs to be had. We are um, urging our colleagues in the sector to come with us on this journey, uh, but they have to, whether they want to or not, they still need to move on this. And so this is essential. Um, so this is, I think this is like one of the key aspects of the charter, but also if you just look at what's been going on in this country in the last few weeks and months, it's just devastating. And we know that not all women's um, lives are valued in the same way, even by those who claim to be feminists, even by those who say that, the, you know, that they work as professionals in this sector. And I think it's, it's high time that that was examined and there was accountability for it. So what I'm hearing is kind of a, a sector where, you know, there isn't a lot of funding to go round, And within that scrapping for funding, there are clear winners and clear losers. And, and that needs to change. Is that the is that the gist? That is correct. Um, I would just add to uh, what Shaista has said is that the structures that enable this are not necessarily obvious. And that means that when we're talking about resources, there needs to be a, a, a conversation about how these unequal partnerships happen and the effect they have on um, the part of the sector that's already quite well known has lost resources and funding at a much higher and much faster rate um, than the rest of the sector. So it's really important to understand how all the issues that we uh, talk about in the Charter interlink with one another in creating these structures in order to dismantle them um, to allow for this change to happen. That makes a lot of sense. And one thing you guys have said quite a lot sort of throughout this has been about it's got to be about action. It's got to be um, not just words, but concrete steps. So, yeah, what are those concrete steps that organisations in the sector can take to move towards being kind of more proactively anti-racist and ensuring greater equity within the sector? There's lots of steps that can be taken. One of the first ones is to sign up to this anti-racist charter, but to sign up to it with the view to holding yourselves accountable when you sign up. It's not just a gesture to sign up. Signing up is potentially a first step to working with a collective group of women uh, in the sector to then start moving things forward. So that's the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is this is hard work. Anti-racism action is very hard work. If it was easy, we wouldn't have... Um, the level of inequity, racialized inequity that we have. So this is hard work and it's work that demands uh, accountability and an integration of, um, you know, the values of an organization and individuals who work there and also their um, understanding of what they have to do to make this action take place so one of the things really if you want if you genuinely want to become an anti-racist organization is you have to look at the power dynamics in your organization and who's who's there and why they're there and why who's missing from the table in the rooms where these organizations hold their meetings and where they work and so you know so I'm talking about people moving out of the way I'm talking about individuals opening up space for others who have been missing in these spaces to be visible, um, but also to come together collectively and work in solidarity with the wider sector and to demand for that change, to push for that change. Um, and having these conversations is not its not a vote winner. It doesn't make you popular, right? So you have to be ready and willing to do this work. But I think the, the, what, the good things and the positive aspect of doing this work is once you start on this journey, 
you find people are willing to come with you on it and you will find more and more allies and you will find people joining you and you will also find that you are actually doing the work in the way that it needs to happen and you your work becomes better more focused and um i think the the politics of the of 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 standing up to violence against women and girls that that also becomes much more clearer so i think one of the issues about the vogue sector is that for too long it has literally been whitewashed of all the genuine realities of what is going on in women's lives and the intersection of you know race um disabilities class for example um and now we're living in a world where perhaps these conversations are becoming more visible for the for uh, after many many years so i think um in many ways i think the vogue sector is actually playing catch up with wider society as shaista said uh, join us um we're not only having the charter we're going to be having a series of workshops starting this month we're going to be advertising this as as widely as possible i would have to 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 add that transformation is possible and these structures were created and put in place at some point and dismantling them is possible and what lies beyond the dismantling of those structures is a much more radical change that would truly enable um women and girls to live lives free from violence and and it's It's really quite key, perhaps, to ensure that um, we can bring the message that one of the reasons why this work is so necessary and one of the reasons why we're inviting everyone to join us is that oppressions feed on one another. So it's not really going to be possible to address one type of oppression without addressing other types of oppression. And the invitation is... Yes, come ready to work and, and really we mean it because it's really easy to get started and it's really easy to get discouraged at some point. Uh, come ready to do the work, join us on this journey and let's really look for radical change um, that will have that transformation in the actual lives of black, uh, well, black and minoritized women and girls for sure, but in reality it's going to be of all women and girls. Absolutely. This time last year, on the back of the Black Lives Matters movement, there was a, a discussion and a demand about defunding the police, and there was such a huge level of pushback against this. Um, there was no real understanding of what that term means. And a year on, we this is now a part of a national conversation around violence against women and girls about how do how does the police how do you reform the police? What type of policing response is needed for violence to end violence against women and girls? How is that shaped who's responsible for shaping it this is part of the whole um discussion the wider discussion around defunding the police but because this discussion is now primarily being vocalized by white middle class women there's a very different response to it from the state and there's a very different response to it from the media but actually these two conversations as 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 says you can't eradicate one form of oppression without understanding that all oppressions inter interlink but i think this goes also to the heart of the work that we're trying to do in this sector which is um some some uh people some women will be heard 
louder and their views will be accepted and their demands will be accepted ahead of others, basically based on the colour of their skin and their lived experience. But actually, we're saying the same thing. But it's about how a message is um, delivered and how it's interpreted and how it's accepted by wider society. And you've spoken very eloquently about about what the issues are within um, the violence against women and girls sector specifically. But I wonder, did you have any thoughts about what lessons there are within this discussion for the wider charity sector as well? I think the the wider charity sector needs to interrogate this as well. And there is work being done by fantastic uh, groups of activists and campaigners of Charities of White, who was very vocal, um, for example, bringing some of the intersectionality into the discussion around COVID, but in a truly intersectional way, which means not looking as if different things around health, around, you know, employment, around um, access to benefits were happening in um, isolation, but how they interlink with one another to have specific results. I would say as well that in this reimagining of addressing um, racism as a form of oppression, as a structure, as in a way like the standard of operation in the sector in the sense that black and minoritized uh, women, girls, uh, men, men and boys are usually not listened to, are not occupying the space and all the issues that, that Charista was addressing. But thinking about that call to defund the police um, is about for the whole sector to, to try and reimagine a different future. If we were not putting so many resources into the criminal justice system, what else can we be funding? And what radical and transformational work could we be doing if those resources were allocated differently? So it has a very wide impact doing this work and really going into it because the the change, I'm sorry that I keep saying change, but the change that can be brought about can be beyond what we envision today. Absolutely. And I think the wider lessons for the sector are get your houses in order. You cannot separate uh, accusations of sexual harassment, uh, structural misogyny in your organisations with structural racism in your organisations or ableism, homophobia, whatever your organisation, you know, the harms that it's creating. You can't separate these harms. So, you know, um, on the back of the Me Too movement, which is still going very strong, as we know, there was a big rush by a lot of these NGOs to come out and make statements about gender justice and women's rights. And then we've had the same going on with Black Lives Matter. At no point have you seen the two intersect. The two are deeply connected. Uh, why are they not willing to make those connections? Um, I also feel that they, they, the wider sector needs to understand that you, if you don't do this work, it will be done for you. You need to do it with everybody else. You need to do it with your employees, with with your, I don't like the term, but your beneficiaries um, and with campaigners, or it will be done for you because actually you are very far behind from everywhere, everyone else. Um, and I feel that there's still a lack of accountability there in the wider sector. Um, they're kind of, um, overwhelmingly, I think the wider sector is always trying to paint itself as an observer rather than hold itself to account for being, you know, right in the middle of all of all these um, uh, harmful power dynamics that urgently need to change. So I think that that is, for me, what, what I'm noticing more and more. Uh, great. Um, that seems like a good place to leave it. Was there anything else you wanted to add? So we have a website where there's more information available, uh, where you can sign up to a charter and you can sign up to our new newsletter. As I said, 
we're going to be starting uh, this uh, program of workshops to work with people in the sector and kind of discuss some of these issues at a more deeper level. But the information is going to be um, in the website. We're going to be uh, campaigning on social media as well. And we're going to um, be bringing people together through a newsletter. Brilliant. I will obviously pop links to that in the show notes and in the story on the Third Sector website where this where you find this podcast as well. So listeners will be able to get that information. Brilliant. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making time for this, Rebecca. So each week, as ever, we are bringing you our good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And this week, we are focusing on the revival of the London Marathon. And we're joined by Third Sector's newly minted marathon expert, Andy Ricketts, who completed the Virgin Money London Marathon on Sunday in aid of Skylarks. Hi, Andy. Hello, hello, hello. I'm not sure if I would describe myself as a newly minted marathon expert but i suppose uh, i mean among the third sector team (laughs) as far as i'm concerned if you have a medal you're newly minted (laughs) i think and we'd have seen the medal you bought the medal into the office yesterday i tried it on it was uh, very exciting it's the closest i will ever get to actually owning a marathon finishers you know medal so that was quite a big moment for me so yeah so how, how are the legs how are you feeling well yeah stairs i mean the old cliche is that um going up and down stairs is a is a terrible challenge and definitely um i mean we're on day three now of the recovery and um, after two days of feeling like some kind of antiquated robot um waddling up and down the, uh, the stairs it feels like almost like a slight terrifying experience when you're standing at the top of a flight of stairs thinking my legs hardly bend how am I going to get down these (laughs) things without tumbling to the bottom but certainly day three they're feeling a lot better today I think I raced down the stairs in probably about you know just under three minutes so that was great (laughs) and you were training obviously for for the marathon for what feels like forever I mean easily more than more than a year's worth of training that went into doing that run on Sunday um so after that culmination of all of that work and all of that effort what was the what was the best thing about doing the actual race itself for you I think the best thing is is the atmosphere really and just the crowds and the whole the whole experience of the day I mean there were just some incredible moments just on the course where I mean people often talk about Tower Bridge because when you cross Tower Bridge you've you've run almost half of the route and you turn the corner um, onto Tarbridge Road and then you're just kind of greeted by these huge amounts of people all kind of cheering and on either side and and I had my name on my running shirt and people must have shouted my called out to me literally hundreds of times on the way which is incredible and just the whole kind of sense of camaraderie and all the volunteers actually I mean the, the volunteering aspect I mean you know, obviously we, we're well into volunteering on third sector, but there are thousands of volunteers that make this day happen. It's not just the people who are doing the running. You know, it's people giving out the water bottles, giving out the kit bags at the end, making sure everyone's aware of humps that are coming up in the road. You know, there are people who are volunteering just to basically stand on a place and say, hump, hump, <laughs> hump. <laughs> so the runners know not to trip up over a road hump in uh, in Greenwich. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's amazing. And just yeah. the way that the communities actually own the race is, I think, fantastic. You know, you've got the, the, they really come out in force to, you know, offer you sweets, oranges, support. They're playing music. There are kind of bands on the route. I mean, it's a, it's an extraordinary experience. So I was um, very privileged to have uh, taken part. Brilliant. And were there any kind of surprises going around? I think the emotional roller coaster of the of the whole thing was um, <laughs> did kind of take me by surprise. I mean, I think I'm a you know I'm a fairly sort of steady person, but I am prone to um, to a bit of emotion now and then. And I I found that when I got to Cutty Sark, which is about sort of um, seven miles in and and probably the first moment where you uh, see much in the way of crowds I actually felt a little bit emotional at that point just kind of all oh, I was kind of like wow you know I'm a part of this amazing thing it's the first kind of landmark really isn't it on the course yeah yeah that's true yeah and um so that kind of took me by surprise totally and then I, I think the other thing is the fact that there are lots of other people called Andy, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were unique. I know, but actually, you know, I'd kind of look round and someone was shouting, go on, Andy. And actually they were shouting to a different Andy on the other side of the course. But that's fine. <laughs> you know, if you hear your name, it's always nice. So that was probably a surprise too. Um, brilliant. And um, so, yeah, so yesterday in the office, uh, we were back in the office and sort of, you know, you were sort of uh, sharing your experiences and, and we were all looking at the medal. And uh, you were telling me that your hairdresser had a story about the London Marathon. Did you want to uh, <laughs> do you want to share that? Because I think I think it's, it's quite a good one. It's a memorable one, one of the books. Yeah, well, I'll cut it a little bit short. But basically, my hairdresser was telling me that in the early days of the London Marathon, I guess in the sort of 1980s, he cycled up to the start in Greenwich Park and he was looking for somewhere to tie his bike and he found a kind of small scaffolding tower and he thought, oh, I'll just tie my bike here. And then he thought, oh, look, there's some steps I can go up the scaffolding tower, getting me a really good view of the start. So he went up there and at this point he had his sort of high-vis jacket on because he'd obviously been cycling and the next minute a bunch of kind of dignitaries arrive and they're all kind of there's like the mayor of Lewisham or something like that and he's got his security guard and all this sort of thing and they've got this big flag and they're having terrible trouble unfurling the flag they can't kind of do it and they see my hairdresser standing there and obviously think you know given the fact that he's wearing a high-vis jacket he must be something official so they end up giving it to him it's like oh ego can you sort this out so he's kind of wrestling with it and trying to unopen the flag the next minute it kind of flies open hangs over the side of the scaffolding and all the runners whoosh they're off and he's actually (laughs) he's he's actually been accidentally flapping the flag over the edge of the scaffolding and he accidentally started the London Marathon exactly. <laughs> so, oh, no. I mean, that is, uh, he kind of prefaced the story before he told me it by, oh, did I tell you about the day that I accidentally started the London Marathon, which kind of spoiled the end of it somewhat. <laughs> but what I want to know is at what point did he reveal to the surrounding dig- dignitaries that he had nothing to do with any of it and he was just a cyclist? Or do you think he just <laughs> went, thank you all, like, I hope you enjoyed my contribution, enjoy the race, and then very quietly go back down the scaffolding and cycle away as far? so this is like can carry him well my understanding is that he didn't he at no point did that ever become apparent but this had been something he'd been there a couple of times before in the same place on previous years and he'd kind of been clocked by the security guard but obviously they thought he was someone official but apparently the following year he went up there and he tried to um he tried to get on the scaffolding but someone stood in his way (laughs) 
So he wasn't <laughs> able to. So I mean, I must, I must say, I've had no chance to verify any of the information in this story, and it could be the, you know, the kind of shaggiest of shaggy dog stories. <laughs> uh, it it does sound like a brilliant one. It's a good one, all the same. Yeah. Possible urban legend about the time a marathon in the eighties was just started by a random <laughs> yeah. um, Brilliantly, um, great. So obviously, amazing experience. Some fun stories out of it. But key question: How much have you raised so far for Skylarks? I was really lucky to have a uh, a media place, so I was, um, you know, obviously it didn't cost me or it didn't cost the charity anything to to get a place in in the marathon and i decided to do it for skylights because they are our you know they're our corporate charity um haymarket which is um as we've talked about on here before that they're, they're our uh, they're our corporate partner and um, they're only a small local charity working with um, children with disabilities and other issues and so anyway to cut a long story short <laughs> i have raised um so far 1726 pounds um, which uh including gift aid, is 2,119. So I'm pretty pleased with that. But there, there is still time to donate if you did want to contribute, listeners. Yes, we will put the donation link in the show notes just in case. Indeed, yeah. Any any more donations would be very welcome. And actually, it's taught me a few lessons about fundraising, to be honest, taking part in this whole thing. Do you know what? Asking people once is not is not normally enough <laughs> to get them to sponsor you. No. So uh, I can have a little bit more sympathy with all our fundraising friends out there. Absolutely. And of course, the total raised by the marathon will continue to rise over the coming weeks as people finally do get around to making their donations. Um, but Virgin Money Giving's early figures for donations through its platform suggest we may be looking at a record event this year. Um, so far, marathon runners who've been using Virgin Money Giving as their platform have raised £19.9 million, which is really, really impressive. The platform said it had recorded its highest ever level of donations in race week, with £8.2 million raised in the seven days leading up to the marathon and £2.11 million donated on the day itself. Yeah, the fact that we're seeing these kind of record totals on race week, uh, record amount in on race day, that could partly be due to the fact that this has been the first in-person mass participation London Marathon event since 2019, as a result, obviously, of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, as Andy was saying, like kind of the, this in-person event and the, the value of that and how people feel about it, even in the communities that they're running through, how people feel about participating in it or watching their friends participate. You know, I think it is just always going to be different to a virtual event. And then, of course, the other thing which is very likely to boost fundraising this year and is also, you know, a byproduct of the pandemic is that for the first time, runners were able to take part in the mass race in London or a virtual event that allowed them to complete the 26.2 miles over the weekend, just at a time and place of their choosing as a virtual event. And obviously that was something that was brought in for the pandemic, but they've kept up alongside the mass race. So I think, you know, hopefully that should have a good impact on, on fundraising. I think actually that, that that virtual event is so much harder for people to do, I've got to say, because they just haven't got the support. You're just running on empty roads, basically. I think that, you know, having the people cheering your name and um, having people kind of watching and shouting make, made a massive difference to me in terms of keeping on going. And I, so hats off to all the people who who did the virtual um, marathon on, on their own, uh, kind of pounding the lonely streets over the weekend. Absolutely. And those donations continue to pour in. So just this morning, Just Giving told us that runners using its platform had raised £24.3 million so far. So it is all going to very, very good causes. And then we'll, you know, hopefully see that see that keeping on coming over the next couple of days, weeks. 
But apart from all that cash, which is obviously brilliant, there were loads of other good news stories which came out of the marathon this year. I know, Rebecca, there was one particularly that caught your eye. Uh, yeah, I really love this. So uh, Scott Mitchell, um, who is the husband of the late Dame Barbara Windsor, ran the marathon while sporting an iconic photograph of her from her kind of carry on days in the 60s on his T-shirt. Uh, obviously, Dame Barbara Windsor died in December at the age of 83, having been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2014. And Scott took part in the race to support Alzheimer's Research UK. And he became an ambassador for the charity in August. Um, there's also just been a slew of Guinness World Records broken at this year's event. Uh, so 30 in total. Uh, what were some of your favourites, guys? I think that Sarah Dudgeon and Max Livingston Learmonth, who were the fastest people to complete a marathon in a two-person costume, uh, they completed the route dressed as the front and back parts of a dog. And I actually saw them... Uh, while I'd just gone over Tower Bridge, I turned right to head towards coming up to halfway um, to head towards the Docklands and, and the Isle of Dogs before doing this loop. And then you come back and on the other side of the road, you see runners who are basically about nine miles in front of you, which is quite depressing. But I saw the dog and I saw them plodding along. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a favourite as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they must have started much earlier than you in fairness as well. So like, it's not, yeah. <laughs> well, they did it in three hours and 17 minutes. So they also were a fair bit fast. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I think that, that that's quite impressive to be able to to do two of you uh, running the race um, at the same time, which also makes another one that, that kind of caught my eye. Well, there, there were two more that caught my eye. One was... Um, Digby Walker, Benjamin Taylor, Charlie Mason, Edward Holderness, Guy Dixon and Oliver Tipping, who did the fastest marathon in a six-person costume. Um, and they, the six-person costume was, it was a caterpillar, but it was very definitely a caterpillar cake. Now, if one wanted to name this cake, it probably would be Colin, maybe Cuthbert. I don't know. I know there's some controversy around caterpillar-shaped cakes in supermarkets. But uh, yeah, uh, it, was definitely, it was definitely a caterpillar cake, um, which again, I'm, I'm just so, in, is so impressed by the the, um, the sheer teamwork of that do you know what I mean like all of you together I did read an article I did read an article about this effort and they said there were definitely one or two points at which the friendship nearly ended actually <laughs> um, around certain mile marks it looked as though we would complete the race but you know at the cost of our friendship forever however <laughs> they did make it through what I really hope is that they had real smarties uh, glued all around the outside so they could kind of snack as they went along keep that energy up i just i just hope that none of them needed the loo at any point <laughs> yeah. that would have been awkward if all six of them would have had to cram into one of those porta loos <laughs> and there was another one saying on subject of team efforts that we ended up having a bit of a discussion in the office about yesterday um which was this was andrew pelton niall cooper and michael pelton um so who were the fastest marathon four-legged now, it took me a while to work out the best way to do that, because in my head, I assumed they would all like stick one leg out and tie all of those legs together in the middle. You'd be going in circles, surely. You'd just be rotating <laughs> on an axis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And Andy had to point out to me that probably what they did was have one guy in the middle and, and the other two conjoined on either side, which makes far more sense. But I love the idea of them rotating on an axis for 26.2 miles. That would be really quite, that would be something. And they'd still be at Blackheath right. as we speak, going round and round. <laughs> 
There's a planetarium there. Absolutely. <laughs> As the world turns, so does the four-legged marathon man. Um, uh, yeah, there, there were also some in- incredible costume efforts. Um, Anna Bassel from St Albans finished her marathon in four hours and 20 minutes and 12 seconds. And uh, she won the Guinness World Record for being the fastest person to run a marathon while dressed as a sweet food. She was dressed as a cake. I saw the cake costume. I enjoyed it very much. But I have to say, I think for me, the most ambitious uh, marathon effort was um, Paul Bennett, who ran his marathon wearing ski boots. Oof. I can't, I mean, I can't even walk in ski boots. They are, they are the most rigid, inflexible footwear. You sort of have to rock, don't you, on them? Like you do. walk from the front foot to the back foot and, and your whole body has to move to get any kind of movement in them. And you're sort of like, imagine like if... Buzz Lightyear couldn't move his legs. It's kind of yeah. It's it's yeah. They're not, and they they're, they're just they are uncomfortable things. Like they're they're built to make sure you don't break your ankle, and they're heavy as yeah. well. Yeah. So that is, I mean, seriously impressive. Like I'm wondering if there's a loophole, and he was maybe wearing them round his neck or something. Um, <laughs> you know, you could possibly get away with it. Couldn't I mean technically on a technicality, <laughs> he could get away with it. But if he if he truly ran the marathon with ski boots on his feet he did so in a really impressive time for it just five hours 30 minutes and 20 seconds so that that is quite something yeah that isn't i'm wearing ski boots i'm going to walk the entire way round. and if it takes me all day it takes me all day that is i'm actually putting some effort into getting some momentum going right like yeah i mean if you want to go five and a half hours i think it's something like about 11 and a half minute miles i think something like that so that's not walking pace you know walking pace is probably more like about 20 minutes per mile so he's uh, he's done an amazing job there yeah see this is why we have the marathon expert on <laughs> someone who understands the timings in terms of my timing i was slight i was slightly gutted to cross the finishing line in four hours and three minutes which was very annoying because i was it's the extra to, three minutes is it? i know <laughs> i was hoping to, i was very much hoping to dip under four hours but the last, the last few miles just caught up with me and my legs got so stiff that I couldn't quite propel my aged body over the line in time. Andy, enough of the aged body. I think you've just run 26.2 <laughs> miles. I can't even get down the stairs most days, you know. I think I think you're doing pretty well. The most running I do is running for the bus, frankly. Um, but... but- but also, like, like I was saying, like, I think, um, you know, this is, this is great because it's what you've done there is set yourself, you know, a personal best that you can absolutely break next time. So next time you run the marathon, oh, well, I've beaten my personal best. No sweat. And you can do it with uh, me and Rebecca strapped to either leg and <laughs> see if you can <laughs> set a world record. <laughs> that's not, that's not a team effort. That is, that is stuffing dead weight to a man. <laughs> I know, I know. But we could, we could ride on, we could ride on the back of your success, literally. That would be. So you know, it's just ideas for next year. I'm just throwing them out there. That's a very helpful thought. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but congratulations, sincere congratulations to every person who competed their marathon. Congratulations to Andy. But if you ran in the race itself, if you ran virtually, it was amazing to see everyone back out there. Um, and just a hearty well done, I think, from everybody at Third Sector. And before we wrap up for this week's episode, I have a quick fun update on last week's Fat Bear Week discussion, um, which is, I love this so much. It's given me so much joy this week. 
um, which is uh, that Linda Carter, who played the original Wonder Woman in the 1970s TV show, shared on Twitter that she too had recently discovered Fat Bear Week, the annual celebration of the Alaskan forest-dwelling land mammals who pile on the pounds in order to make it through their winter hibernation. So Carter tweeted about the campaign after we'd recorded our podcast last Friday, but she admitted she'd somewhat got the wrong end of the stick. I keep hearing about Fat Bear Week and I thought this was a celebration of body positivity within a gay subculture, Carter wrote. (laughs) It turns out this is about actual bears. (laughs) Either way, she said, I am here for it. I I just love it. (laughs) I I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's a top tier tweet, that one. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's the sort of thing it is worth being on Twitter for. Absolutely. And I just... Uh, I I thought, you know, it's always refreshing when you can admit a mistake and also just send out a really enjoyable and inclusive message at the same time. So Linda Carter, truly a Wonder Woman. Um, We enjoyed that very much. Thank you. An appreciation to any fat bears out there, whether they are bears or or human, ursine or human. That's it from us. Uh, We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Shaisa Aziz and Hisaya Valle. Of course, Marathon Man, Andy Ricketts. And our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 